in this impersonal world of ours, pretense, I think, is uh, put at a premium. We expect pretense, I think, from all of our public figures. It's par for the course for politicians to act off stage as well as on, and certainly we expect it from our performers. And when someone appears on the scene who does not quite conform, there are difficulties. I'm thinking of one who was perhaps the most celebrated actor in America, Marlon Brando. And through the years, we have an image. We who read the papers, read the gossip columns, and I think everybody does. He may deny it, but he does. Who hear a commentator on the radio or see someone on TV talking about a public figure who was always fair game. We think of Brando as a man who's had difficulties, always been difficult to be with. Because somehow we have a feeling that he is not, some of us suspect he is not pretending. And pretense, we value this so much. So when someone comes along, and as I noticed yesterday, I was deeply moved. It was an experience I rarely had. Listening to Marlon Brando being faced by 300 kids who were editors of high school papers and a few university kids, and there was no pretense. A man was talking to his peers. Uh, Marlon Brando was in town in conjunction with the forthcoming production of his film, adaptation of the letter of Burdick novel, Ugly American, that'll be opening in a week at the Roosevelt Theater. And I was thinking, Marlon Brando, this comment of mine, does this make sense to you? Well, it's, um, it's very pleasing to the ear and uh, to the feelings to uh, have such nice things said about, uh, about you, but uh, I feel that uh, in your naming of uh, those uh, agencies and people uh, uh, that are uh, that do have pretension, I think you uh, you left out one, and that is ourselves. I think that uh, pretension is uh, certainly a universal characteristic of man. Uh, I don't mean to use, speak in such broad philosophic terms, but I, uh, within the realm of my own experience, I see pretension in myself. I think that uh, anyone who uh, who pauses for a moment and examines uh, his motivations will find sometimes that they are not all what they seem, that uh, our motivations are complex and they are not as simple as we would like them. And uh, <coughs> uh, I think in a world where pretension uh, exists so... Uh, uh, to such degree, we can only conclude that, uh, that the whole is equal to the sum of its parts and that each of us, in his, uh, his own small way, uh, contributes to the aggregate pretension, the national pretension perhaps, by his own pretensions. We don't like at all to keep uh, these things inside of us. We don't like to admit these things. We would much rather say we're right. Uh, and Conversely, there are many people who would like to say, I'm always wrong. Whores, uh, pimps, uh, uh, criminals, uh, alcoholics, unfortunates, uh, psychopaths, people suffering nervous breakdowns, tend to deride themselves in the same way that uh, people who are, uh, who are oriented to a superior point of view as a result of not of being so terrified of uh, issues and conflicts that I think was so well stated in this uh, uh, in the poem by uh, 
I can't remember his name. It was Dover Beach who wrote it. Mm, But anyhow, he said, uh, For we are hearers on a darkling plain. Matthew Arnold. Swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. I think that perhaps uh, poetically and accurately and and uh, uh, concisely <clears throat> describes a pervasive condition in uh, man. And uh, so I think it's so we we tend to make heroes out of people as we tend to make enemies. And uh, we like to think of ourselves as pure, as uh, uh, Christian soldiers who are marching onward, or uh, aesthetic uh, uh, philosophers who, who are braving the rigors of, uh, of uh, confusion and uh, uh, man's uh, eternal despair uh, and his sufferings at the hands of ignorance. Uh, but it's not nearly as clean as that. And even the most high-bound intellectual people, the most esoteric thinkers, uh, at least the ones uh, I've met, uh, I think I have experienced uh, uh, something with them that perhaps lead me, leads me to conclude that, that those, that communication with oneself uh, is very, very difficult thing to achieve. And usually if you talk to someone long enough uh, and uh, delicately enough, you eventually will find that there's an inconsistency with what they say and what they feel. Uh, or, on the other hand, there is a consistency with what they feel, perhaps they don't know, and what they say and what they do. And uh, But that interaction, that uh, interrelationship between what we think of or what we do and how we act and what we believe and what we feel is um, very often passes uh, uh, and we, we don't see it. They're just ships that pass in the night. Uh, and uh, in that respect, I feel that uh, we must include ourselves. And, uh, <clears throat> As pretenders. Yes. As pretenders. There's something you said just now, Martin Brando, this... We think so much of difficulty today in people communicating one with the other. You were just making a point that I feel of some significance. Difficulty in communicating with oneself. That is, we ourselves, you spoke of people on two sides of the bar of respectability. The, those respectable, quote unquote, and those beyond the pale. And there's pretense on both sides of the fence here. So even the individual himself, this you found to be the case, I'm sure you speak for probably mankind, each one finds is, who is the guy? Who are you? As James Baldwin often asks, who am I? The difficulty of finding out who you are. It's not, I'm sure it isn't your problem alone, though yours is perhaps more dramatic because you are so celebrated a figure. Uh, I didn't quite understand Who the... are you is the, it seems to be your quest, finding out who you are, isn't, isn't this basically the quest of all people? Isn't this yours specifically? Well, I don't think it's the quest of all people, generally, no. I think that is the, uh, uh, it's the quest of a few people. There was a book by Gerald Sykes that was written, written recently called The Hidden Remnant. And in this book, he discusses uh, issues that touch very uh, pertinently on this, this theme. Um, since time immemorial, it has been the advice of 
those who are wise or pretend to be wise or the disciples that have written down what they consider to be wise uh, observations about life and uh, most of them I think can be summed up in the uh, famous phrase that the unexamined life is not worth living and uh, that the, the beginning of all wisdom is in self-knowledge and that uh, each man uh, is a reflection uh, or that the world is a reflection of oneself and uh, uh, certainly today uh, it uh, behooves us more than ever to examine these things so often uh, people say well don't tell me I know you know I don't know my own mind I certainly do uh, the infinite delicacy the gossamer the uh, the ineffable smoke-like quality of the mind to rationalize, to justify its own feelings. If you hate someone, well, let's examine, for instance, the hatred of uh, the uh, Negro by the Southerner, or the hatred of the white by the black Muslims. Uh, if you examine, you talk to uh, Elijah Muhammad. Yeah, Muhammad, Muhammad Elijah? Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad. The Honorable Elijah <clears throat> Muhammad is the phrase used. I see. Uh, you will find contained in his, uh, in his um, dialectic of uh, hatred, uh, the absence of hatred. You will find that, he, that there is no visible evidence or statement of hatred. And yet the position certainly is one of that of someone who is uh, uh, reacting to uh, suffering. The, uh, uh, the reasons that he, just, that he gives are perfectly true, 100% true. But the motivations are different. The motivations uh, are completely different. And very often people can be 100% right for 100% wrong reasons. And uh, the, uh, when you uh, ask the... Uh, I was talking to a woman the other day, uh, an airline hostess, and she said she came from Georgia, a southerner, and I said, uh, <coughs> uh, do you believe in uh, um, separate but equal... Uh, uh, facilities? facilities. And she said, uh, yes, uh, and she said, no, I, I believe the, in integration. Uh, I think that they ought to be integrated, but I wouldn't want to, uh, uh, I don't think that the races ought to mix. I don't think that the races should be mongrelized. And I said, why not? And uh, in the course of the argument, which I won't relate here, which was uh, too uh, extensive, it really wasn't an argument, it was an exchange of views. Finally, when she came down to the... Um, uh, the last analysis of her uh, assumptions, uh, it was based on what she felt. It was not based on anything of what she thought, because as she reached out to find reasons and justifications, uh, uh, it wasn't the cleverness of my, uh, uh, my dialectic that, that defeated her. It was just a simple observation of a few obvious facts, such as the... Uh, the in the uh, perfectly wonderful example 
of integrated uh, living that has taken place uh, uh, in Hawaii, which is uh, the uh, mixture of uh, three, perhaps three races, three or four races, and uh, many, many different nationalities. And uh, that is uh, perhaps the most uh, salient example of what can happen. And uh, uh, it's uh, perfectly delightful to, be, uh, to behold that society because it's, a, it's a, a complete living, documented contradiction to this mongrelization uh, uh, point of view that is so often expressed. But nevertheless, uh, getting returned to what we were talking about, it seems to me that, uh, that the average Southerner has a very difficult time, as does the average Northerner, in inspecting his real motivations. Because we don't really like to express, uh, to, to uh, admit that we are confused, or admit that we are frightened, or admit that we are uh, uh, full of doubt. We don't like to. We like to just blot it out and say, no, that condition doesn't exist. I know my own mind. Don't tell me, don't give me any of your 25 cent psychoanalysis. Well, uh, uh, and perhaps that's, that's absolutely right. Thus we rationalize, and this word, use the word rationalize, rationalization becomes so easy, no matter who we are or where we are. Rationalize what is, we have been conditioned perhaps to feel or think in one way. I'd like to be a little more specific now. Uh, this, I think, is, is a perfect uh, prelude to what we're, we're talking about. You yourself are an actor, are a performer, and I think we've been, we've been conditioned to look at celebrated figures a certain way. People who, you know, the word, the word I'm looking for really is adjusting, adjustment, you know. Uh, the performer adjusts in that he is uh, sweet before his audience, he behaves according to a set pattern, uh, he is a glib in a particular way, or if he isn't glib, he has a public relations handout that he parrots and reads very well. Now you come along and apparently ha uh, upset what might be called the apple cart. I remember a piece in Variety a few weeks ago, uh, you were being quoted as speaking of the actor as being a product, a thing, a valuable thing. I'm paraphrasing you now, but I think that was it. Yeah. And rather than being a human, and uh, some actors can accept this, but you find it difficult to accept this, being this valuable property is the word used. You are a valuable property, Marlon Brando. Yet. The difficulty here is you are also a man. Do you remember that, that quote of yours that appeared in Variety a few weeks ago? Yes. Uh, well, in regards uh, to that, I think that, uh, that we must have, uh, in order to profit, I think that it is one thing to blame and to criticize, but as we do, perhaps uh, we do that, we must realize that these observations that we have always apply to ourselves initially. And uh, uh, because the tendency, uh, you know, of most people seems to me, and most nations, oddly enough, is to say, well, the enemy is out there. The evil is out there. The negative factors are outside myself. Uh, they have nothing to do with me. If, uh, now, for instance, most of, the, most of the Negroes in this country are rightfully and justifiably concerned with the, the, uh, the outrages that have been perpetrated against them ever since they came here as slaves. And uh, they have uh, a perfectly uh, decent, justifiable, uh, uh, ethical uh, 
ground to stand on and to support their, uh, their, their claims and their, de their desires. Uh, but, uh, and I don't mean to qualify that for uh, at all, but if we examine, for instance, the, the history of the oldest republic in the United, in the, um, the, uh, this, the Western Hemisphere, uh, it is the Republic of Haiti, which was formed many, many, many years ago, I think it was in the 15th century. Uh, men like Henri Christophe and uh, Toussaint Louverture and uh, uh, Dessalins and all those great uh, Negro ex-slaves uh, who threw off this colonial yoke and established their own <coughs> democracy patterned after the French. Well, today, if you, any cursory examination of Haitian history will show that it doesn't matter whether you're black or white or whether you're oppressed or whether you are free or no matter what you are. The fact is that they, are, they have, have yet to be able to establish a kind of uh, government and a kind of uh, a pattern of life that is wholesome because there is starvation, there is terrible uh, social inequities and uh, 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 the most m distressing uh, uh, maldistribution of uh, uh, profits and uh, uh, wealth and advantages. And uh, in all those years, they have never been able to do it. So we can't assume that, uh, that just because these things are lifted, that everything is going to be all right. Now, here in America, we have all the advantages that we could have everywhere in the world, anywhere in the world. We are a living dream. We are a, 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 just a, a perfect example of what can be achieved and what the benefits are of uh, uh, an integrated industrial society uh, uh, that, uh, that has all, the, all its wants satisfied. But we're all nervous. You and I are sitting here. You were concerned about these things and all these articles that you... Uh, you uh, uh, that, that you publish uh, here in this uh, magazine, or the interviews that you have, or the, the interest that you have. You were concerned about these issues and, and the truth and what is going on with people and what are people really saying. And you are, you are awash with doubts and uh, concerns. And you are not at rest. You are not at peace. Your personality does not remind me that of uh, some of the uh, Tahitians who I've seen who are peaceful people, the Eskimos or, or uh, some other people. I am not either. And I think that we are representative uh, in many respects of all Americans who have all these advantages but do not have the essential ingredient which is a sense of well-being and a sense of peace. We don't have it. We certainly aren't raging neurotics. We certainly aren't psychotic. We're not, uh, we're not extreme, uh, despite what publicity might say of us. But uh, Nevertheless, we, we still are missing something. And it's that ineffable, indescribable X quality that we really must have. And it certainly is not in money. It certainly is not in the attainment of uh, material goods and manufactured things. Although we certainly, we certainly uh, pursue it through whiskey, sex, um, notoriety, success, money, 
television sets, uh, boating, Kiwana's uh, activities, good doing. Playboy Club. Playboy Club, perfect example. Uh, status, images. We'll try to find it anywhere in the world that we can because we think it's outside, but of course it never is. You know, Marlon Brando, it's, it's fascinating the way you're answering my questions because you're coming back to this theme of self-righteousness or false values in our very selves. And values, you, you spoke of the Tahitians. I know, I know this from what you said yesterday to the high school kids and what I've read about you, your feelings about Tahiti. And there must be a reason for this. And we who are materially well said, it seems, that the values we pursue then, something is wrong then with the goals, the lack of goal you feel. Is that it? Apparently? No, I don't think that's wrong with the goal. I don't think that we realize what the goal is. Uh, I think that uh, the goal that all of us want is, is, this word, it's dangerous to generalize in this term because it's such a, such a subtle issue. And uh, it's uh, like um, protoplasm, or uh, uh, rather ectoplasm, uh, in its uh, nature. But certainly, we do not want strife. We do not want it. But, but uh, it, it, that seems inconsistent with what we do, because we seem to want strife. We seem to chase after it. And uh, <clears throat> I think that perhaps... Uh, at least Pardon me, is it that we want strife or chase after it or conflict because perhaps in our, our very lives may be a drabness or a dullness no, without it? No, I think that it is much easier to find an external enemy to fight than it is an internal enemy. Hitler is a perfectly wonderful, salient, uh, uh, eternal example of a man who was a paranoid. He was a man who felt attacked inwardly by his feelings. He was a man who had a crushing sense of inadequacy and um, uh, purposelessness. Uh, he was a man who felt uh, that it was necessary to conquer the world. And of course, what he, what he really wanted to do was to conquer his own emotions, his own dreadful, uh, his own feelings of dread and, and uh, fear, and his own feelings that, that one part of him was attacking another part of him. So he attacked the Jews. Now, uh, uh, as among all bigots, they, they will find a reason to attack the Jews or uh, the Chinese or whoever it is. But he felt that it was necessary to attack these people. And then after he, he saw that the Jews were going to be killed uh, and exterminated, uh, which he did, six million of them, then it was the uh, Ukraines, it was the Russians, the, the, the Slavs rather. Uh, and he felt that they should all, because so they were being uh, exterminated. There were some millions of them, I don't know how many. Then the Poles. But he had to exterminate all these people, get them out, because they were the enemies. And if, if he had conquered the world, if he had gotten the uh, heavy hydrogen from uh, Norway, had he perfected the atomic bomb and the uh, buzz bomb, uh, and uh, assuming that he did conquer the world, you can be assured that he would have killed the Negro, he would have killed the Japanese, he would have killed everybody except the pure Aryans, or done something, done the most he could to destroy. And then finally when he was left with the pure Aryans, then he would, he would qualify what was purely Aryan, and eventually he would have been perhaps left with himself. Um, 
because, or he would have attacked the left-handed people of the world because their minds were diseased, that they were badly formed or something. But this man had to attack externally. Now, many Germans will tell you that he made important contributions to Germany because he came at a time when uh, Germany was certainly economically oppressed and suffering. And it's, it's tr certainly true. He did build roads, hospitals. He gave Mussolini made the trains run on time. That's right. And, but uh, but uh, we always like to have things neat. And, of course, they're never neat. And uh, uh, when we attack something... It, uh, I, now, I noticed something interesting. Uh, in the Freedom Riders, uh, there was one man who went down there and was beaten up very badly. And he put a sign on himself when he came back that said, I am a victim of racial uh, prejudice. Uh, and he was a white man. Mm -hmm. And he put this sign on himself and stood there with his head just listening slightly to the left with these great bulges and bruises and things. But he put himself on display as a martyr. Now, had there been no, uh, no justifiable and reasonable issue of uh, freedom writing uh, to devote himself to, he might have found something else. It's likely that he would have found some other cause so that he could have had himself beaten and uh, into um, to a pulp so that he could hang a different sign on him and say, I'm a martyr. And uh, it's those things that attend almost all of our activities. It's the labeling, then. The word labeling, perhaps, might be the one that disturbs well, you a bit. Well, we, we like to... We're forever, <clears throat> not only Americans, but people all over the world, we're saying we like to think that the, that the trouble that we have is going to be solved by one thing or another. It's either getting all the blacks out of our way, getting all the whites out of our way and allowing us to have a decent life, getting all the rich people out of our way, getting all the, uh, uh, all the disease out of our way, whatever it is. Whatever it is that disturbs uh, the individual that is different from him, let's say, that seems different from him. You said something earlier about we want things neat and compartmentalized. There's several, a lot of questions come to my mind as you're talking, but let's stick with this for a moment. When it neat and, comp and compartmentalized, I'm thinking of Jacques Tati, you know, the, the French yes. humorist. And his whole approach throughout has been seeking the naturalness of imperfections, accepting the imperfection that is in life, you see, mm -hmm. and that he is the non-adjusted man who in a sense is close to the natural man, that even though he upset the routine of people who wanted order, many people found in him and his presence a certain kind of joy they would not have found otherwise. Because imperfection is a natural thing. He says when the machine goes on the blink, that's when the man most enjoys it, tinkering with it, more than the man who drives the perfect car. And mm -hmm. in, in a way, this is related, I think. The, I'm thinking of this word adjustment. Robert Maynard Hutchins spoke of adjustment courses in school, how terrible they are. To adjust to what? See, to adjust to what? Who sets the norm of adjustment? Uh, Hitler wanted adjustment, and I know that you like, uh, interested in Summerhill, a school in England, A.S. Neal. He spoke of tyrants come into being, or brutality comes from unhappiness. Unhappy people, in a sense, must find this out, must find this scapegoat.
that you're referring to indirectly here. Is what I'm saying related to what you've been talking about? I think that uh, the, perhaps the key word in your uh, remarks is scapegoat. We all must find the scapegoat because we cannot live, we cannot accuse ourselves. It's too uncomfortable. It gives us a feeling of hopelessness to accuse ourselves of our iniquities, our inadequacies, or or uh, whatever it is. So we must find the face of that evil outwardly. Uh, as we were talking about yesterday, Joseph Campbell articulated that theme so well in, uh, in uh, the book, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, because he traces the history of man's, uh, of man's eternal search for the face of evil, for the face of uh, good, for the face of virtue, and for the face of uh, badness. Uh, the idolatrous uh, uh, and relentless search for God and the devil. Now the face of God changes from culture to culture, from age to age, from person to person. And uh, we have our own personal gods and our own personal devils, and we have our system of archangels, and we have our system of uh, archdevils, I'd say. And uh, we worship them. And if you ask everybody in the world, what must we do to, uh, to have a decent world? Some of them will say, you have to you have to take women's rights away because the women are really running the country and they're, uh, they're really out to get you. They own 89% of the economy and uh, the laws are all in favor of the women and uh, that's what I think we ought to do. Somebody else will say, well, we ought to segregate all the peoples of the world and have no kind of mixture at all and put the mulattoes and all the uh, uh, racial mixtures into one group. South Africa, yeah. apartheid. Yes, or everybody has a different idea as to how to solve the world. What is useful and what is not useful? What is good and what is not good? Uh, and uh, the pursuit, not only the pursuit, but the implementation of trying to achieve that uh, leads us in the eternal circle. Now, it seems so painfully clear that if the world were all a shining democracy, at least shining in the concept that most American thinks that America is a shining example of democracy, which I think it is not, uh, then it would be swell. The communists think, well, if everybody was communized, it would be a wonderful world. Well, the minute that that happened, the day that the sun, uh, the, 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 the sun rose on those circumstances would be the day that you would have people saying, uh, fighting one another for some other reason because the world has never been without conflict. And it, I think it behooves us now. Uh, it, well, it's, it's absolutely imperative that we do it, because it is one world whether we like it or not. It might not be one world, but it's one planet. And uh, it behooves us now to scientifically apply all our technology and investigative uh, capacities to the nature of hatred, to the nature of man himself that produces uh, the uh, the uh, chaos in uh, uh, South Vietnam, or uh, the murder of the American Indian in the Sand Creek Massacre, or uh, the uh, 
the communists, uh, blood, uh, purge in Hungary. We have to do that because uh, we, we cannot, I, I think, we can no longer go along with a luxurious uh, and comforting concept that there is an intrinsic different, but difference between the Russian and the American or the Chinese and the Indonesian. There's a theme here that <coughs> seems to haunt all you're saying that obviously is a theme that is recurring. I believe in your work too, the saint and devil in all of us. In a sense, this was the theme of One-Eyed Jacks, was it not to some extent the film that you directed as well as played in? Yes, it to wasn't. Some extent. It was. It wasn't. Uh, fortunately, articulated in the way I'd wanted it. Because. But is this the theme you were seeking to some extent? In the I wanted to uh, show that uh, the spectrum of good and bad exists in all people, and that uh, we cannot dispense with it. We we have a duty to Carol Chessman, as we have a duty to Dr. Schweitzer. We have to respect. We have to respect one another's weaknesses. All that lives is holy. In and one another's hatreds. But we have, to, we have to respect the nature of hatred, but we have to understand it in order to dissolve it. We cannot dissolve it by attacking it with hatred. And the age-old uh, age writ that says uh, uh, that, that we should return the love for hatred doesn't mean that we should stand there and allow ourselves to be pounded into a pulp by somebody who was... It simply means, at least to me, that we should, we, that we, should, we should deal with it with intelligence and with perception and not return in kind what it is. Certainly we're not going to let uh, Carol Chessman run loose and commit those crimes and be uh, socially uh, destructive as he was, but we must... We, he, is one of, he is a part of us. He is... Uh, he is uh, 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 someone, society did something to him. Uh, one thing uh, that, uh, and uh, one thing that uh, that's that's pleasing and encouraging is the fact that the old concept, old concepts of sin and badness, are being revised in the courts, because unbeknownst to themselves, the uh, judiciary, the people who pass judgment on uh, criminals and things, are coming to understand. That there must be some, there must be some reason that fifteen or five um, uh, young teenage people will stomp a crippled boy to death, stomp him to death, kick him, mash him into the ground, and expunge his life. Now we have to. It, it's a mystery why we did that. There's no rationalization. There's no reason for that. We can't say that they're insane because we test them and they're not. We can't say that they are. They're evil. Because they're, they're not. They're, 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 they're just, we don't know what to call them. Eventually, we start hovering around the possibility that something is not right with these people. And maybe something's not right with our society. Now, that is, uh, that's a good question. Because instead of being broken on the wheel, as they did in England, and uh, punished and uh, flailed, which of course produced nothing, we are now trying to apply some, uh, some of our knowledge gained in recent years to uh, these extraordinary acts. But whatever we've done, it has resulted now in a, in a swinging change, that, uh, a slowly growing arc that uh, <clears throat> is aiming towards an understanding of the dynamics of human feeling and behavior.
you feel this is happening. You, you, you appear optimistic in saying this. You feel there is this slow growing understanding despite the execution of a chessman or the self-righteous voices becoming more uh, loud than ever. Yes, I think that it is not, uh, you see, of all the wonders that science um, has uh, yet produced, uh, there, and, and not produced, but of all the wonders in this uh, age of scientific investigation, the greatest wonder of all is that science itself has not, until very recently, uh, focused itself on the nature of man and what comprises him, what are the component parts of him, what makes him do this. We do it, most amazingly, for uh, in our motivational research laboratories in order to sell people cigarettes that give them cancer or uh, underarm uh, uh, deodorants. Yes, yes. De deodorants. That uh, and we will do anything to exploit him. We will do everything that we can to to, to study his discomforts and his uh, his hopes, his fears, his foibles, his wants, his needs. Uh, move up to quality. We must sell him quality. We must sell him stature because he feels so inferior. The whole. This whole Playboy uh, m m phenomena is interesting because it, it satisfies that urge of people feeling totally inadequate and totally without stature and uh, individual reward. So we give them a kind of an ersatz... Uh, uh, eroticism, perhaps. Uh, er no, not only eroticism, but uh, it's a combination of many things, but among them is, uh, is a kind of uh, uh, mail-order uh, sophistication and uh, meaning because it is, it has the word private. It happens to have probably several, several million members, and it's hardly private, but at least it's, it's clever enough to sustain the illusion. He belonged and, to something. Yes, but uh, uh, I, think, uh, uh, I think that wholesale, wholesale attacks on things are now being, uh, in many, many, uh, arenas in many, many areas and uh, uh, conferences and congregations is now being examined so that the quality of wholesale and frontal assault on any issue, even on this issue that we're talking about, uh, is undergoing examination. Well, I think everything you're saying is related to you, strangely enough. It seems not, but it is related to you as a, an artist, as a craftsman. I think this, you are obviously examining this, the saint and devil in all of us, the flaws within all of us, the rationalization. If I may, may be specific, and approach this particular role you did, you've been told about this so many times, and yet if you can find a different vein. When you did Kowalski, it was Klorman, it was Kenneth Tynan who spoke of your performance as being lyric in quality, but something more than that. Your lively imagination at work transformed what might have been, and apparently Williams accepted this, change the emphasis of the play. The audience, here's a brutish, outwardly a brutish young man, yet the audience to great extent, when you were doing the role, saw it through your eyes. And in a sense, Blanche, they saw Blanche Dubois for a fraud to some extent, because of the nature of your performance, everything you've been saying, I think is related to the way you interpret a certain role here. Here's this man. Will you go ahead? Uh, I don't think that it's uh, related to that, uh, if I may, uh, may disagree. I think that uh, those are just super manif superficial manifestations of, uh, of what 
I have, uh, I have uh, come to find as a result of uh, the examination of myself, I think that it's always in poor taste and, uh, and uh, certainly questionable to use oneself as a reference point. And uh, <clears throat> in, that, uh, uh, in that regard and respect, I, I don't choose to use myself as a personal example. But I think that perhaps on the other hand, that's the only that's the only frame of reference. It's the only index, and the, it's the only lexicon that we can refer to. Certainly, I can't refer to your experiences about uh, what the world is about. I'm not. Can't refer to C.P. Snow. Uh, uh, I'm not going to uh, to uh, uh, to. Um, investigate Edith Sitwell, I must view the world from, from what the world is, and what the world is from the point of view uh, of myself, because the, I see the world through my, not only my retina, but through my psychological retina. And uh, I have to understand how I see the world, because no matter where I look, my psychological flaws whatever they are, and we all have them, each and every one of us. We have very definite concepts of what is good, what is bad, what is usable, what is not, what is interesting, what is boring, uh, what is peaceful, what is uh, threatening. And I have to learn my special language about myself in order to be able to begin to communicate with somebody else. Because if I don't know, if I don't know where those areas are, I won't know when the information is fed back into me from somebody else it w that it is automatically being deflected and bouncing off the hard core of, uh, of ignorance. And I must make constant, constant adjustments for what the other person is saying uh, in relation to the, the perceptors that, uh, I, uh, that I must have knowledge of my own perceptors and how I receive language. For instance, you can tell me something that will irritate me. Uh, and you can express a point of view that, that might be uh, unsettling to me. But then I have to ask myself, well, why is that point of view unsettling? And the first thing that I'm going to do is say, I'm going to reach into the bag full of rationalizations and I'm going to hurl a few generalizations, which might be very smart, might be very adroit, might be very clever, you know, and in, in, insidious in, their, uh, in their, their use. But they might be completely wrong when the real reason uh, uh, lies in some other area that I just don't bear, can't bear to look at. And most practically seen, you see this phenomenon in the South where people say, well, God, Jesus, if we get the niggers in here, why, why, hell, they'll just be running us all over. They'll, uh, they'll ruin us. I mean, they'll ruin our race there. They're monkeys there, this and that and the other thing. And these poor, desperate people are so f filled with, with uh, a terror of what's going to happen uh, if the Negroes come into power. Uh, they grab any reason under the sun, under the sun, and they completely ignore, out in their fear and in their uh, distress, they completely ignore the possibility that as a result of suppressing these people for so long, they feel enormously guilty.
feel they unconsciously anticipate a great wave of hostility, part of which is real, certainly, because the black Muslim movement is an indication that that uh, all is not rosy with, uh, with the Negro, and uh, that what at one time passed for a happy-go-lucky, smiling... Stereotype. Uh, yes, stereotype. Uh, the, the, that, the, the lurking antagonism in that uh, uh, creature who had undergone humiliation and hopelessness and degradation to its, you know, to its fullest measure has now come to life. But uh, uh, it seems that, that they now, the people in the South, are undergoing very important uh, challenges because each of them, they sit at home, in their homes, and they say, well, what's going to happen? The, the niggers are going to our school. Well, my God, they're, they're right in Mississippi now. They're in Mississippi at Oxford. This, uh, what's going to happen to us? What, are we all going to turn into niggers? Uh, and they're asking themselves all kinds of strange questions. And eventually, as a result of this pressure, the arrest of Martin Luther King, these people going down uh, and uh, forcing these issues, an answer is going to be uh, forthcoming. And sooner than we expect, people are going to be living together in peace, uh, perhaps not uh, entirely peace, but they're going to be living together and enjoying some measure of reasonable social intercourse, and all these dreams of what was going to happen isn't going to happen. Well, Madam Brando, despite your disagreement with me, I cannot dissociate what you're saying with your interpretation of certain of the roles you're playing. I'm not saying great intuition isn't at work. I don't mean it's all intelligence, but somehow I feel your particular outlook. I come back, and by the way, I have a hunch too, a feeling that this may be unsettling you when I bring up Kowalski, because so often you've been associated with us, and here's a stereotype made, which is wrong. And we can discuss that later on too, the other roles. I want to even, I wonder if the audience is aware that you are a marvelous Marchbanks. <laughs> you have a marvelous Shavian figure to Catherine Cornell's Canada. But, Somehow, the way you talk of evil, no, you, you talk of the saint and the devil and all of us and rationalization, the reason that role, it seems to me, and apparently to a great many respected critics, is that your performance had so much vitality and intelligence and a lyric quality to it that it actually changed the author's intent. But this probably could not happen if you did not think. I'm not saying then you thought the way you do, but that intelligence was there to some extent. You disagree with this? I'm sorry, but I can't... Yeah. I, I don't find the, the, the issue. Yeah. I don't quite you know, understand. Let me rephrase this, Marlon. The, throughout this theme, and you agree, the theme of the saint and devil and all of us and rationalization, you know, the saint and devil and all of us is, is a, a, key, a key problem of our day or a key something to understand that there's a battle in all of us the battle of the good and the bad, and it's easy to find a scapegoat uh, because it, pre it, it, it negates the necessity of examining ourselves. You know, we're seeking self-examination, all of us are. Yeah. In the role, outwardly, I'm watching a play by Tennessee Williams, a streetcar named Desire, and there is a rather brutish, crude, rough young man on the stage, Stanley, and there is a rather delicate, sensitive sister-in-law. And... Outwardly, we might see uh, a guy who's brutish who destroys the sanity that was on the uh, teetering edge anyway of a sister. And yet, because of your interpretation, and this apparently was accepted by the playwright, he's apparently added more dimension 
to what I had. I've heard this said, and apparently he did say it. And some of the critics said, your, the power of your, of your performance was such that the emphasis of the play was changed. We saw Stanley. We understood what made Stanley the man he is. And we also saw the fraud in Blanche Dubois through his eyes. What critics? Well, Clorman said this. Yes, but you used the plural. Uh, Tynan did, too. Tynan, Tynan uh, was referring to Clorman. He says, here is a good critic because he speaks from the standpoint of a director. Yes, I think that, that uh, Eric Bentley didn't say that. And there are many critics that didn't. Uh, say that they said something entirely different, and what I mean to point out is, uh, or, <clears throat> I'd like to use that as an illustration. Uh, uh, it, it's uh, reminiscent of the old parable that the the three blind men were walking along and they saw an elephant, and one felt the sight of it and says, "Oh, well, here's a wall. We've run into a wall." Someone else, uh, someone the other, one grabbed the tail, and says, "By no means, this is this is a snake. A snake with hair on the end of it," and. Uh, the other one felt the leg and said, you're both wrong, it's a trunk. Well, the, returning to what we were saying before, you saw uh, what Kenneth Tynan saw. You saw what perhaps Harold Clerman saw. Now, someone else saw something different. It all depends on our particular disposition. Uh, that's always been a mystery to me because, because Shakespeare has lived through the ages because he has communicated something eternal. Uh, that uh, he has he has communicated something in a major way. He has said something that has affected all of us. So he has lived. But uh, uh, there are others who, in their day, were considered great, but who died off because they they didn't have this universal uh, touch, uh, these universal tentacles that just spread into the future because uh, they they lacked a universality of communication. Uh, now, people will view actors as individuals, they'll view interviewers as individuals uh, in a different way. I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening uh, to this program or who have listened to it one time who thought, well, what the hell is he talking about? My God, he gets so esoteric and so full of, of finesse, and uh, he is uh, a boy. That's a lot of nonsense. Uh, God, God, let's uh, get you know. I, that's ridiculous. I, I don't want to hear that program. I mean, Jimmy Baldwin, who the who the hell is he? I mean, you know, he was never went to school. He's uh, what kind of intellectual pretension are they trying to afford? You know. Now I've described this perhaps uh, prejudicially. It, uh, but there are other people who will sit also quietly and say, "Well, I've listened to uh, I've listened to this uh, fellow, and many of his programs are interesting. Of course, uh, uh, he's wrong in this area, or he's wrong in that area." And, and uh, I listened to that interview with Marlon Brando, and uh, I think that he was um, certainly right about this issue. But of course, he's completely wrong about the other, and uh, that's because he visualizes the world differently from I, than than I do. But uh, and you div you visualize the world differently from I do, uh, from the way I do. So does Kenneth Tynan, and so does Eric Bentley, and so does Carol Clerman, and Tennessee Williams. But um, uh, uh, I, I I only use that as an illustration to say that we will never see things when we say eye to eye. There is no eye to eye. There are some similarities. For instance, I'm on this program because. 
you have heard me uh, speak, you know my sister, you know some of the things that I think about and perhaps uh, some of the, the, the manner in which I tend to evaluate things, which has a certain feeling, you have a certain feeling about. And I use the word feeling advisedly because it really is feeling. Uh, now, there are many intellectuals and uh, many non-intellectuals or many uh, pseudo-intellectuals or aspiring intellectuals, all of which we might be a part of, uh, who uh, will have something in common, a cause in common. But when they get right down to it, there are great, vast differences. Uh, and, uh, but they find themselves touching on these tiny little uh, uh, pistols of... Uh, Using a tentacle. Approach. Yes. <clears throat> and the little antenna. Yes. Not really hitting it. Yes, because there is something in you that feels that feels that it can communicate with something in me. Now there are something in in, in other people who who are saying who have no communication with us at all. They don't understand what we're talking about, and they are disinterested in what we're talking about. They think that what we're saying has nothing to do with reality, and it's just too. It's just a lot of words, a lot of folder, and it might very well be. Uh, uh, you know, we certainly can't be the judge of that. There are others uh, who will say, my God, that was really wonderful. These fellows certainly know what they're talking about. They're, they're delving into issues that are dynamic, that are really attached to the central core of, of, uh, of, uh, of things. And uh, uh, these, are, these are the fruits of, uh, of introspective labors that are going to produce some wonderful things in the world. And, you know, they won't do that. No, 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 but there are some people who are saying that. Yeah, I know. Of course, uh, I know. It, 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 that, that's completely a suspect. Too. I, I think what you said, Martin, I'm, I'm really strangely, strangely, touched is the wrong word, but impressed very much with what you've just been saying because you're pointing out something very important, a danger, I think, to me, I know, and obviously to you, of where I'm, I'm trying to reach you, there's no doubt of that, and I think we're making some contact because you are a man, I, I think there are many facets to you, this is clear to me, this is not a public relations man's picture. Because you are able, in a strange way, to articulate what many people are feeling and thinking and not doing. And this matter of people seeing different things, uh, leaving street cutting desire for the moment, people seeing different things, yet a great work of art, you're saying, people will see an eternal truth. See? Well, suppose you were to do Hamlet, just for the moment, an assumption. Would it not be a wholly different interpretation, yet at the same time you're saying we would know Hamlet's motivations very well, even though your interpretation might be wholly different, say, from... Olivier's or a Gilgood's? I think that, uh, uh, yes, I, I suppose, well, anybody that would do Hamlet uh, would uh, alter in some degree, in some, uh, some poetic flavor, the nature of the man, his relationships and his aspirations, his fears. Some would accentuate the confusion, some would accentuate the, uh, the poignancy, uh, some would very clearly delineate the philosophical uh, 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 stalemate that Hamlet finds himself in. And according to uh, the man, they, they, would, they would bring to life some part or illuminate some part of the mosaic that is, uh, that is the Hamlet today. And uh, I use the word uh, mosaic because I think that accurately describes 
what Hamlet is, because it is a mosaic of many, many uh, things, many, many points of view, uh, any and all of which can be successfully uh, illuminated and accentuated, and still, without disturbing the main theme of the piece, it holds itself intact. Uh, but uh, yes, I suppose I would reflect a uh, different aspect as... Uh, as but at the same time, I think uh, earlier, just uh, touching upon, say, Williams and Shakespeare, this, uh, this is not meant to, to you know, denigrate Tennessee Williams at all, who's certainly one of America's foremost playwrights, perhaps the most. But the idea there's an eternal truth, there's eternal power in the writing of Hamlet that may not be in some other play. And so no matter how you interpret, you, you were discussing the, the three different, many different interpretations of your, of Kowalski as seen by different people. But Hamlet is a certain kind of guy. Emphases are different on part of certain performers. Mm -hmm. But that certain big truth is there that may not be in a playwright of, who is not of that stature, you see. And thus it was, say, your Kowalski, you, you sort of objected to the way certain people saw your role. Not objected, you saw that people see so many different ways. Yeah, I think that, uh, that if a playwright, uh, uh, if a playwright has uh, great, great power, uh, well, I'll give you an example. I don't think that uh, uh, that uh, John, uh, what's his name? He wrote Tea House of the August Moon. Patrick. Patrick, yeah, of course. Uh, John Patrick is a great playwright. Uh, I think that he is uh, he is a fine craftsman, and that he wrote a wonderful play, delightful play, uh, an extraordinary uh, uh, technical virtuosity in many respects. And uh, I, for instance, I feel that I did not play that role well at all. I felt that I was miscast for it. And that, Zucchini. Yes, and that I didn't do uh, very well in it, certainly not as well as Davy uh, Wayne or uh, uh, Eli Wallach. But uh, nevertheless, that play had such strength in construction that it carried. It carried the bad performance of myself and I think uh, a performance less valuable uh, than some others by Glenn Ford. And... Uh, uh, no matter, I don't think that Danny Mann directed it very well either. But whatever it was, the strength of the play, the framework, carried us through because it was successful. That is, uh, is almost an actor-proof, actor director-proof uh, uh, vehicle. And uh, it, it had the, the, uh, the fiber to support the, the most incredible errors uh, of interpretation and, uh, and uh, rendition. And... Uh, such as the play of uh, Tennessee Williams, uh, Streetcar Named Desire. That's hard to, uh, it's hard to destroy yeah, that play. Something has occurred to me. Uh, you were speaking of uh, John Patrick, an excellent craftsman and not an artist. Yesterday, in speaking to the high school students, you said you are a, a craftsman, you know, a craftsman of, well, I would say of consummate skill, certainly. You said, but you are not an artist. You would not call yourself an artist. Why not? Well, I didn't say that uh, I was a craftsman. I really don't... Uh, uh, I say you are. Oh, well, I think that... Uh, I don't know what an art of, uh, artist is. I don't know really how to apply that. Uh, there are some people who will say that uh, Yehudi Menuhin is not an artist. He is an interpretive uh, uh, creator. And that an artist is someone who does makes an original contribution, uh, who 
performs the service of creating wholly some, uh, uh, some, something that is separate from uh, the work of other people. And that uh, William Capel, who unfortunately died in uh, this uh, airplane crash, was not an artist. And that uh, Leonard Bernstein is not an artist, he's an interpreter. And uh, uh, in that respect, uh, I, I don't know how to answer it. It's, um, of course, my remark was certainly partly tempered by the fact that uh, I live in a, in a world that deals with uh, uh, dollars and cents in a very crass fashion. That, uh, that movie production is thought of as product. It's, uh, it's the law of supply and demand. Now, contained within that, I think, for instance, as within the, uh, the world of journalism, uh, the Manchester Guardian certainly lives in a world of law uh, that is controlled by the law of supply and demand, and they have, uh, they have, uh, they have to supply the demand that is made on them for a certain quality of uh, news, certain quality of information and interpretation uh, that will not be tolerated by, uh, well, let's say, the likes of a Time magazine uh, uh, brand of journalism. Uh, but uh, uh, so it's uh, it, with, with, with uh, many respects. I, I don't feel that it's uh, entirely appropriate that I should say call myself an artist when I have those associations. I uh, think that uh, there's great pretension about uh, artistry, and uh, perhaps I uh, it's out of my respect for uh, what it means to be an artist that I uh, don't choose to call myself one.